0: This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively.
1: Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale.
0: So come on and join
1: Hello, Candy. We are back to talk about Chicago again. Uh-huh. I'm excited to talk more about Maureen and to really it's dig into too. the story behind Chicago. But I'm also excited because now that we're pulling it all together, we get to, I think, do a little bit more of that armchairing and that mm-hmm. analysis that we both like to do so much. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start with a question that asks for a little bit of analysis. When you think about the play or the movie, mm-hmm. either one, Chicago, from a more analytical or directorial stance, what are some of the things that stand out to you, like technically?
0: For the film, I liked, I really liked the approach that they took where the musical took place in Roxy's mind. Mm. I really loved the way they juxtaposed her having these conversations in real life versus the mm-hmm. way the music was taking place, especially in cell block tangle. You see that where she's hearing the stories of the women and then you were seeing it through cell block tangle. I, I, I liked that. And yes. I know it was a different approach for that, but I thought it really worked, especially for Chicago. I agree with you 100%. In fact, I have a little story that
1: kind of illustrates that Kirk saw the movie a long time ago but really doesn't have much memory so of it. Is, so as I was researching this I ran across little YouTube clip of the number they both reach for the gun mm-hmm. which I absolutely love is it the two high schoolers it was not that version I've oh, seen okay. that one before yes
0: they were amazing they were
1: amazing but it was actually one that was on one of the Broadway sites okay. so it was a Broadway cast that was performing it in some open area it wasn't actually on Broadway it was like they had brought the cast out and they were doing it for some show or something okay. but the point is I was amazed because I love it's the one where they do the puppetry and the choreography yeah yeah. and the creativity are just so wonderful and so I made Kirk watch it with me and he was looking at it cold he did not remember the story he okay. did not remember the movie he was watching it cold and he was very unimpressed Aww. and also a little confused uh-huh. like he could see that they were doing things that was skillful uh-huh. you know artistic but he didn't get it mm-hmm. so then I showed him the YouTube clip of that same song that same little performance from the movie and he he loved it. He, he got, got it, it. because gotcha. exactly the same reason you were saying the way that they were juxtaposing it against here's what's happening in real life. This is the way the reporters are posing the questions. This is how they're manipulating their responses to to get some kind of a reaction. He could see that when you would move into the uh, metaphor, the yes. metaphorical view of the puppetry. Yes. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I thought that was very cool.
0: Another song that I thought was making a big social commentary was the Razzle Dazzles song when he's in the courtroom give him the old razzle dazzle Mm.
1: yeah that was strong well i ask because we're going to of course get into the whole history of how the play and then the movie movies came to be our friend maureen Watkins was born as ashley mentioned in part one in kentucky she was born july 27th 1896 in louisville kentucky and then later she and her family moved to indiana where she attended crawfordsville high school her father, George, was a Crawfordsville minister. According to the 1928 Indianapolis Star, an article that was in that, she started writing dramas from a young age. At 11 years old, the Ladies Aid Society of the Crawfordsville Christian Church presented her Hearts of Gold, which generated $45. So her nice. she had a work called Hearts of Gold. So the book said, Douglas Perry's book that we referenced in part one, called The Girls of Murder City, talked about her father sending her to Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky, because it was a school affiliated with their Disciples of Christ faith. And when she went there, her goal was to study Greek and Latin poets. Now, it sounded as though she attended many colleges. A different source mentioned her attending Hamilton College in Lexington for a while, but All the sources agreed she ended up at Butler University in Indianapolis for a time. And that's where she graduated very high up in her class in 1919. After that, she started her graduate work at Radcliffe College in Massachusetts. But her career path took a turn when she got accepted into George Pierce Baker's playwriting workshop. This
0: is so cool don't you love this? I love this. Keep keep telling them because you're going to tell it right and I would paraphrase it incorrectly. So I just love this. I love it. Well he was a professor in the English department at Harvard.
1: He was not only supposed to be the best known drama teacher in the country but he was also Eugene O'Neill's mentor. So getting into his workshop was a huge deal. Yeah. And it changed her life. One of the things that he did in addition to teaching her all these wonderful things about playwriting, he challenged his students not to get bogged down in the academic but 2 quote, find out about your great, bustling, crowded American life of the present day. Remember, she is a girl who is from a rural town. Her father's a minister. She is a very religious person. Mm -hmm. She is a very modest, conservative person. And this is a time, we talked about it in part one, where society is modernizing rapidly. In fact, we talked a lot about Chicago in the 1920s. We had a lot of concern about the immorality, the depravity that they felt like they were seeing all around them there were doctors putting out warnings that the flapper lifestyle which they characterized as meaning people who wore makeup and spent late nights dancing and petting these doctors were warning that that could cause quote severe internal derangement and general ill health what they had school boards across the country putting it in their contracts that female teachers had to be in bed by 8 p.m and were not allowed to wear skirts above their ankles Bob their hair or smoke cigarettes. I mean, because everybody was concerned about what was happening in society. They felt like it was it was getting too wild. Mm-hmm. And Chicago, of course, was the hotbed of this. Mm-hmm. And other people were trying to put these constraints on it. Well, Marine No, no, no,
0: constraints on the ladies. Well they
1: were putting the constraints on that, the ladies. That is true. That is true. And Maureen came from a family that actually believed in these old ways yes, and they she did. did herself. Yes. So when her teacher said, Go experience life. This is what prompted her to go apply for a job as a newswoman at the Chicago Tribune. Yeah,
0: she wanted to go someplace that would scare her. Mm-hmm. And so she went to the biggest place that would scare you. And she actually ended up thriving. Yes. And um, yes, absolutely.
1: She was shocked when she got an interview. Because what she was going for was not what they would normally put a woman into, like maybe mm-hmm. the advertising section right. or one of the social, you know, society sections of the paper. She wanted to be on the police beat. Yes. So she got her interview and she went in for it. And just to paint the picture, I know you you alluded to this before, Maureen Watkins was tiny. She was barely over five feet tall. She was very shy. She had beautiful blue-gray eyes. While most girls of the time had bobbed their hair, she wore her dark. Dark hair long and pulled back. Everybody else was showing their calves or their ankles. She was wearing conservative clothing. I mean, this was a girl who was very modest. Yes. Very unimposing, I guess you might say. Mm-hmm. So she's walking into this bustling newsroom and she's asking for a job as basically a crime reporter or police reporter. And she's 27 years old, by the way. This was February of 1924. It was very unusual for a woman to get this position. They only had one other woman at the time, Genevieve Forbes, who was working for the Chicago Tribune in that area. Now, the other thing we should say is that the Chicago Tribune was one of the papers that was known to be hard hit like they actually wanted people who had committed crimes to be convicted they were not the paper who they had were not the a sob, sob sister. sister nope that Mm-mm. was not them so so this was a hard-hitting place and Maureen liked
0: that do you have the quotes in here about the conversation that happened between her and the guy that hired her all right so here is the passage I'm going to kind of skip around it's on page 15 of the book and I'm gonna read you little bits of this because I just love this whole exchange between <laughs> her and the guy that hired her there was something else something that made her a especially unsuited to the position she sought. Her shyness was palpable. No, she had not been a reporter before, she admitted, sitting across from the city editor. She barely got the words out. Had any newspaper experience at all? He asked. No. Know anything about journalism? I took it in college. (laughs) He looked her over, trying to get a bead on her. The appraisal unnerved her. She forced her hands to stay in her lap, took a deep breath. He tried another tact. He asked her why she thought she could make it as a police reporter at a professional paper, specifically one of the country's most admired and aggressive papers. Maureen's mouth ticked open, but no words came out. She was too frightened to answer. Lee's gaze remained impassive, and Maureen realized she had made a terrible mistake by coming. I feel you, Maureen. (laughs) This was a serious operation, employing trained and dedicated staff. A Tribune reporter had famously tracked the absconding banker Paul Stensland to Africa and brought him back for trial. Who was she, Maureen Watkins of Crawfordsville, Indiana, to think she could be a reporter here? She stood up, and tried to get an apology unstuck from her throat. Lee, that's the editor, stood too and insisted she sit back down. Maureen crouched on the edge of her seat. The editor sat and looked her over again. She was so small. I don't believe you'll like newspaper work, he said. Maureen nodded. I don't believe I will. They understood each other. Lee told her she was hired. $50 a week, she could start the next day, Saturday. He rose again and showed her out. Yeah. What a first day, Maureen. <laughs> I love it. Well, it was an accomplishment. Yes. I mean, it was terrifying,
1: but what an accomplishment. And it really stood out because the other papers, especially the Hearst papers, they went for those sob sisters yes. that we have talked about so much. They were the women who would take this overly drippy sentimental stance when they were talking about women criminals in particular and it was just something that was not looked upon with much respect for one thing Mm -hmm. and it was the furthest thing from what the Chicago Tribune believed in. Now the other thing that made this unusual is Maureen as I think again this is something I believe you mentioned last time Ashley they wanted her to get these female criminals to open up because she was so sweet and innocent looking this editor in particular the same one that was mentioned in the excerpt you just read lee he thought you know what maybe these murderesses will tell her the secrets they'll they'll... these inside right and they did he was
0: smart because that did happen so they're using her looks To manipulate the criminals, just like the criminals are using their looks to manipulate the public. Oh, good point. One other thing was that male
1: reporters, they did not want to cover the girl bandits. A lot of the male reporters thought that this was beneath them. They took offense if they were asked to cover these types of stories. So here you have these female committed crimes on the rise. It's like huge in the press and the males don't want to go cover it. So there was a lot of thought, I think, behind hiring Maureen, but it was still incredibly unusual. And she stood out because unlike the very few other women out there who were doing the police beat, they tended to be a little tougher. They tended to be more worldly. Mm-hmm. She had never even seen a poker game. She didn't smoke. She didn't drink. And they said that this actually drew the men to her. Mm. Do you remember the part in the book where one of the editors had to make a rule that the men couldn't hang around? Oh, yeah. Yet. They were just
0: <laughs> all around her desk. Just flocking around, around her. flocking
1: around her. Yes. Maureen came into this inexperienced. Totally looked wrong and she killed it. Okay, she was on duty when the Belva Gartner case unfolded and she was right there when Belva came in that first night to the police station. She jumped right into that story. So, one other point I want to make we've talked about the fact that men didn't want to cover these cases, but Girl reporters were not respected, and they they made the point in Douglas Perry's book, even women didn't necessarily respect them, and that's something that I guess readers or other female reporters brought out. But there were some quotes in Douglas Perry's book, one from a reporter, this is a fella named Ishbel Ross, who said, On the big story, her vision, meaning a woman's vision, is apt to be too close and her factual grasp inadequate. And he goes on to talk about the fact that he didn't think editors could depend on quote, the variable feminine mechanism. And these editors needed complete reliability. So they were all saying that women couldn't be trusted to be insightful, to hold to the facts. Um,
0: Jeez-ish, Bill.
1: How do right? you know? And they said the Sob sisters didn't help that because as these Sob sisters would be putting their stories out there. It well, was too that...
0: sentimental. Right. And that mm.
1: seemed to actually feed into what these, gotcha. these men were thinking and feeling. So Maureen was smart enough to know that she was going to have to fight to get coverage for her stories. Yeah. She was already in a a losing battle because she was a woman covering this beat that women didn't normally cover. She was going to have to fight and women hardly ever got the front page. So she decided she was going to cover Belva's case, which was her first big case, as important news and she decided she was going to spice it up by adding some of this wry humor. So after seeing Belva in that police station and and getting to talk to a little bit, overhearing some of the questions and answers. She threw her first article together so quickly that Maureen actually had several errors with spelling or details. For example, she called the murder victim Robert instead of Walter. Mm. But she did something right because not only did those first two articles that she wrote on Belva get featured play, but it got her an exclusive interview with Belva Gartner and permission to cover the entire case. So Maureen came out of the gate hot and she managed to make an impression and get herself into that Belva Gartner case. So getting access to Belva was exactly what her editors wanted from her. And just as they had predicted, she did get them to open up with her sweet, innocent mm. appearance. Belva told her all kinds of things. And she probably, and we're guessing here, but she probably didn't expect that Maureen was going to put some of the things oh. in her article that she did. It's kind of a
0: little girl talk, you know, just between us. Right,
1: exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. As
0: it said in the book, Maureen knew she
1: quote worked for the paper that was out for conviction always and she believed in her mission so as she wrote her articles a lot of times she would call things out but she hit the right tone they said that her articles really resonated with her readers and even though Belva might think that she was talking to a sympathetic ear that wasn't the case Maureen would put in some of these comments that Belva didn't think she would say for example here's a quote gin and guns either one is bad enough but together they get you in a dickens of a mess that's true we'll give you one more example of a piece of maureen's article ashley would you read that part that's marked right there yes
0: the latest alleged lady murderess of cook county in whose car a young law was found shot to death as a finale to three months of wild gen parties with belvo while his wife sat at home unsuspecting isn't a bit worried over the case Why, it's silly to say I murdered Walter, she said during a lengthy discourse on love, gin, guns, sweeties, wives, and husbands. I liked him, and he loved me. But no woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it, because there's always plenty more. Walter was just a kid, 29, and I'm 38. Why should I have worried whether he loved me or whether he left me? Then the double divorcee of frequent newspaper notoriety turned to the question of juries. Now that coroner's jury that held me for murder, she said, that was bum. They were narrow-minded old birds. Bet they never heard a jazz band in their lives. Now, if I'm tried, I want worldly men, broad-minded men, men who know what it is to get out a bit, why no one like that would convict me. So Maureen was not afraid to tell it like it was. And knowing that that was in the paper
1: and she still cut off. I know, it's crazy. So an interesting observation that Douglas Perry made in his book, which I really appreciated, was he pointed out that because Maureen had that, journalism background Mm -hmm. and she was in this playwriting workshop with Mm -hmm. george pierce baker that she could see crimes with that narrative arc she could see them almost like a play yes so here here's a quote from the book every crime story was instantly recognizable the plot the characters the narrative arc and moral code maureen had studied drama under george pierce baker she got it. Life would be so much better, so much more alive if it could be stripped down to its essentials, like in a play.
0: I love that quote. I remember reading that. Yes. Yeah.
1: So while Maureen was getting her feet wet doing all this coverage on Belva's case, it was only three weeks later on April 3rd that our other even more high interest murder occurred, which of course was Beulah Annan's murder. So Maureen was able to get a story on the Tribune's front page with this beneath a headline that said woman plays jazz air as victim dies yeah maureen wrote mrs beulah Annan, a comely young wife played a foxtrot record named hula then telephoned her husband and reported that she had killed a man who tried to make love to her so i love the commentary that douglas perry made about that he pointed out that she knew how to hook her reader talking about that music hula playing while he died basically that got the reader attention but he also pointed out that maureen was really wanting to show how beulah could quote play ball how she could manipulate things because that actually we're going to talk about this a little bit later but that was the original title for that play what was it play ball oh really yeah because Mm. the whole thing was really about manipulation and playing the game and playing ball. Mm. So Maureen followed Beulah's case. She followed the prettiest murderess as she brought in her defense attorneys. And then she actually, of course, was as surprised as everybody else when Beulah announced that she was pregnant, which came again the day after another inmate was sentenced to life for the murder of her boyfriend. And they, they said that scared her scared everybody, I think. So on May 9th, she had a headline announcing Beulah Annan awaits stork murder trial. And then underneath it, she wrote, What counts with a jury when a woman is on trial for murder? Youth? Beauty? And if to these she adds approaching motherhood? So it said by the time that the juries were chosen, Maureen's articles had helped to bring both of these women to celebrity status. So while it's interesting, I think yeah. that she hated that this gave them celebrity, yeah. but she was part of yeah, what she brought them to celebrity. Yeah. So obviously Maureen was also gaining some celebrity. She was getting some attention with these mm-hmm. articles. So about the time that Bila was being set free from prison, Maureen was actually covering an even bigger more important case in fact it was called the crime of the century and it was not only a high profile case because it involved wealthy people that was a big part of it but this was a big deal for Maureen because it was also not centered around women who we've already discussed people deemed to be less significant than men why don't you tell them what case was this
0: Leopold and Loeb yeah.
1: It was the kidnapping and murder of Bobby Franks, which turned out to be committed by the, the two college boys that yeah. Ashley just named. So this was a huge deal for Maureen. She managed to get into the funeral of Bobby Franks. A couple of sources. Wasn't used, at their
0: house. It was at the house, right? Yeah,
1: and they used the phrase, she snuck into it, That she sneaked in. And then was actually assigned to cover the story. And it said from the very first, Maureen felt something was off about those college boys. Why everybody else, most everybody else was falling under their spell because mm-hmm. they were charismatic and they were
0: smart. She just and- was able to see through mm-hmm. this stuff.
1: Yeah. She just knew something was wrong. And so she ended up in a room with a group of reporters where they were given the chance to ask these two guys. Oh, yeah questions nathan they were each leopold. one question right mm-hmm. they could to ask
0: him one question and hers was a really smart question it was yes
1: yes she asked them what three men do you consider the greatest that ever lived now i'm not sure if i got the guy's names in so it was nathan leopold and dick Loeb. okay, okay. we
0: got their last names okay
1: first so nathan leopold's answer to her question was he named nietzsche because nietzsche believed in superior man heckle who thought there was no immortality of the soul and nothing beyond this life Mm. and epicurus i think hope that's how you say it who advocated the right of the individual to do as he pleased Mm. and so these answers that was very revealing revealing. yes because they said most everybody i mean 99 percent of the people who were listening and all these reporters and everybody else were just impressed by these boys intellect and their poise and their brilliance but according to the book quote Maureen was not fooled she saw a scary narcissism in Nathan Leopold noticing that he seemed to live in a world of his own creating and the people around him are more or less shadows Mm. now a little side note that I thought was interesting was that the book also pointed out that there were two other fellas from the Chicago Daily News who were not fooled either, and in fact did a little detective work that helped to bring some evidence to light and actually got them a Pulitzer. So... Where's Marie's Pulitzer? <laughs> I guess she didn't bring any new evidence oh, to light. okay, okay. Yeah. So that group press conference that we just discussed actually occurred right before Dick Lowe broke down and the boys confessed. So on Monday, June 2nd, the day before Belvis trial opened, Leopold was actually... Actually, quoted a saying on that day. I don't think this was by Maureen, but a quote Mm -hmm. to show where he was in Mm -hmm. his mindset. He said, "It was just an experiment. It is as easy for us to justify as an entomologist in impaling a beetle on a pin." And that was talking about the kidnapping and murder of a fourteen-year-old boy. Yeah. In the meantime, she, you know, she's now kind of juggling the two cases. Belva has been acquitted, and Maureen was thoroughly disgusted with that. In fact, she addressed it in an article. Here's a little short quote from that: "Only four women, the fewest in years, are now waiting trial for murder. For they're getting out even faster than they're getting in." <laughs> And the two who walked to freedom in the last two weeks, pretty Beulah Annan and stylish Belva Gartner, robbed the women's quarters of their claims to distinction and plunged murderous' row into oblivion. Whew. yeah which is also a, a point Belva and Bula were some of the bringing last bringing attention right so they were some of the last celebrities like actually after their cases things kind of quieted down mm-hmm. in Cook County on, in Murderous Row anyway so after Belva's trial was over Maureen focused her attention back on this crime of the century and it said she was very disgusted by them according to the book in reference to one of Maureen's articles Douglas Perry said Maureen had little interest in imparting any actual news with her report, she was simply out to ridicule to hit the two wealthy criminals where she knew it would hurt them most. Ego. Their, yes, yes, their egos. Yes. And he commented, Douglas Perry, that her approach worked because even 25 years later, Leopold would say how deeply he hated the Chicago Tribune. Oh, so she got to him. She got, she got, got to him. him. And by the way, we're only talking months. She has been a reporter for months, and this is what this woman has been up to, covering at That's least... That's a lot in a very short amount right, of time. Right. Three huge murder cases, at least. But she's gained confidence. She now has her satirical style down, and she has started playing with the idea of writing a play based on Beulah's story. And she wants her focus to be not on Beulah, not on that crime, but on this whole media celebrity that gets laid on top of these people who do awful immoral things. It was interesting, because it said about this time, she stopped covering crimes, and Maureen moved over to work on movie criticisms. Hmm. And she made it sound as though she had been forced to do that Mm -hmm. but the author of the book Douglas Perry he wonders if she'd had enough I would
0: think so like if it had taken its toll yeah and she was so disgusted Mm -hmm. it would be hard to continue after that
1: yes and so he wondered if she was just ready to move on and by the way we should say in terms of the crime of the century this case of the murder and kidnapping of bobby franks clarence darrow had taken over the defense of those two college boys leopold and Loeb, but they did both end up being sentenced to life in prison plus 99 years so rightly so good for that so before we go on to talk about where maureen went next should we take a
0: small break let's do it friends if you love what we do and would like to show your support we have a new opportunity to share through a service called buy me a coffee you can donate a one-time gift of any amount or make an ongoing monthly donation of five dollars or more your cup of support would help keep the tea brewing by offsetting our podcasting fees and allowing us to purchase new equipment Simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod or find the information on our Scandalwater Water podcast Facebook page or website. Thanks so much for your support and cheers to you. And we are back. So when we left off,
1: Maureen had moved over and she's now working on things that are a little lighter, like some movie criticisms. And one point that was made was that this case of the murder of Bobby Franks didn't really fit her her style as much she was almost witty and cynical and kind of tongue-in-cheek when she would deal with these girl murder stories but it didn't play the same way as when she was doing this leopold and Loeb story about this time Maureen decided she was done with reporting anyway. She took an editorial position in New York and she enrolled in the just opened Yale School of Drama with her former teacher, George Pierce Baker. And her total goal was that she was going to finish this play that she had now started. Mm -hmm. So she titled it The Brave Little Woman. And she decided the main character would be based on Beulah Annan, although she renamed her Roxy Hart. She got the name from a real murder trial that had happened in her hometown when she was oh, growing up. okay. So there really was a woman named Roxy Hart. Okay. But it was her boyfriend who had committed the murder to hide their secret affair. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, just like... In real life, in the play, this character, Roxy Hart, does shoot her boyfriend when he tries to leave her, and because of her gorgeous face and figure, the media does turn her into a celebrity. There were other things that were just the same. For example, in the play, we also see that she got the fan letters. She fakes the pregnancy Mm -hmm. to get the spotlight when she thinks it's going to be stolen by this other girl murderer. Other things, too. In
0: fact, do you want to jump in with a few things that you saw that were the same? From the the film? I can tell Mm -hmm. you from the film just about beulah or all of them? the record player when roxy killed fred it's a nod to her and also the lingerie if you notice that renee's character is wearing lingerie when she does that yes I like in the press conference where in some cases, Beulah said, yeah, I did it. And Roxy says, I bet you want to know why I shot the, you know, SOB or whatever she's heard. And it's just like, yeah, I did it. And in the law, in this case, the lawyer shuts her down like, no, no, no. And that's why he (laughs) talks for her. But I thought that was also a nod to her in the way they dressed. I think even in the film, Roxy gets uh, a single rose. I think she brings that in at some point. Doesn't she? I I didn't remember that. I think it's her. I think she brings in a rose that she got and another girl wanting to do her laundry now Mm -hmm. and velma wanting to do have pictures with her
1: yeah yeah well in this original play which is going to be written in 1927 when it finally comes out velma plays a much smaller role and of course it is not a musical but as we've just said it very closely follows Beulah's case. So much of it's the same. But again, as we've pointed out, I think, numerous times, the point of Maureen's play was not to cover Beulah. It was to, quote, expose the utter corruption of both the legal system and the newspaper industry. So it was really about the corruption mm-hmm. and about media manipulation. Yeah, it was a, it was a commentary on society mm-hmm. versus just a story of this girl. So Maureen finished her comedy. By now it was called Chicago by the end of the term. And her teacher helped her get it produced. He introduced her to some New York agents. And one of them snapped it right up. It was Sam H. Harris, who was George M. Cohen's former partner. Because she had the connections here, it was going to go straight to Broadway.
0: I mean, come on now. That's amazing. I know. Maureen, you've had a life.
1: (laughs) Well, they knew it would be controversial, not only because of the satire, you know, treating a murder in that way, but also it did not The content. Right. The content. it, It definitely had controversial content. It had sex and drinking and it had cursing, which was something that Maureen didn't like but I think felt like it was necessary. It's accurate, you know? But it said that there were a couple of early rave reviews that set the tone. And once those came out, everybody else kind of, like, piled on. on Mm -hmm. And the play was a huge box office success. And Maureen herself got a lot of media attention. By the way, I don't think we said when it opened, it was late December of 1926. I was wrong earlier. It was 26,
0: not 27. So that's only two years after all this happened. Yeah, it was quick. And do you have that Belva actually went I, yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we, We'll wait. Let you tell us that. No, go ahead. I mean. No, it, I think it's when, fascinating that she actually went and saw it and she's like, yeah, I'm Velma. She knew it. She she attended it. Did With Billy Flynn.
1: With, you, um, with the,
0: the lawyers. Yeah. Did she go to opening night or no? She it just saw it. was the
1: premiere in Chicago. <laughs> she just, It was when it came to she Chicago. She just went
0: to it. Of course, Beulah did not. She did not. She did not go. Yeah.
1: Well, it was funny because Maureen Watkins got so much attention from her play because it was so well received, but she didn't tell people about her coverage of Beulah or Belva's cases. A lot of the articles talked about her coverage of the massive hugely widely known Leopold and Loeb trial but she wouldn't, she didn't bring up the other. Why not? Well, the author of the book speculates that it might have been for two reasons. Number one, you had a lot more credibility if you were known for covering the crime of the century Ah. and a female covering that too. Also it had been two years now since Beulah's case and that of course was widely known in Chicago, but not necessarily in New York. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't very widespread. And Douglas Perry wondered if perhaps Maureen might have been worried that if people thought she basically kind of ripped this
0: from the headlines Uh versus creating it herself, that it might not have made her look like as strong a writer. Oh, that's right. Or she might have gotten in trouble if some of them were saying, hey, that's my story. In her case, Belva was proud of it. She was fine with it. Well, she even put herself in the play.
1: It was kind of a little tiny, part but there was a woman from the ledger who supposedly doesn't buy into Roxy's story unlike the other sob sister so that was supposed to represent her mm-hmm. and of course i think we've said this before she collapsed william scott stewart and ww w. o'brien into that one lawyer character billy flynn
0: am i remembering that she would sometimes play that small character well, i don't know if it was that character but yes she would go she and play would, it
1: she would show up and go on stage as one of the background extras during some of the scenes in the latter half of the play. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. it said that she did this all the time. In fact, she even understudied a few of the minor roles because she loved actually Aww. being involved in it. Oh, Yeah. So the play was under George Abbott's direction and it had a successful run of 172 performances. And just like you said, when the play went to Chicago, W.W. W. O'Brien and Belva Gartner were at the premiere. And there were several quotes because reporters did talk to her about sure. it. Sure. And I love the quote you gave, but another one was that when a reporter asked Belva about it, that, you know, if she was Belma, she said, sure, that's me. And went on to say, and Roxy was Beulah. Yeah. Yeah. Called it right out. Yeah. Two days before Christmas in 1927, the movie version of Chicago opened. It was a silent movie produced by Cecil B. DeMille, directed by Frank Erson, and it made a key change. Mm. They portrayed Roxy's husband, Al, as a strong male who kicks Roxy out of his life when he finds out what Mm -hmm. she's done which i think was a statement showing that they didn't you know they didn't like how he was shown to be dominated by this yeah this female Mm -hmm. and then about this time maureen is now 30 still single she's telling people she's 26 Mm -hmm. (laughs) and she's got a lot of celebrity of her own she is in high demand But she has not achieved any success outside of Chicago. She took a few projects her first years, first couple years, and they did not do well. One of them was a play called Reverie. I think they put that on Broadway and it it went down pretty quickly. And I don't believe after that that she ever produced one of her own plays.
0: It's sort of like Harper Lee. It was To Kill a Mockingbird was her one big hit. And this seems to have been Maureen's one big hit Mm -hmm. was Chicago. It was huge though. No, it was
1: huge. Well, according to Douglas Perry's book she retreated into her shyness and for a time she did short story writing and then after the depression hit she moved to Hollywood where she wrote for lots of different movies. In fact she has more than a dozen credits as a script writer to her name. One of those for example was Libeled Lady. It was a 1936 screwball comedy starring Spencer Tracy and Jean Harlow and it kind of revolved around this newspaper setting so she mm-hmm, obviously she had a lot of background about that. Then according to a Chicago Tribune article just from this past two 2019, Maureen's beloved father, George, died on February 15th of 1941, at which point she stopped writing, stopped working, and stopped traveling. Mm. According to this source, there's no record of her whereabouts for almost a decade until her name appeared in the 1951 city directory for Jacksonville, Florida. Now, the speculation is that she moved to Florida because her parents were ill and retired, right, and that's okay. what led her there. Okay. Meanwhile, I should point out during this time frame in 1942 is when the second film version called Roxy Hart came out. Ginger Rogers. Yes. Have you seen it? I have not. I tried to look for it and I couldn't find it. Well, an important change in this version, which starred as as we think we just said Ginger Rogers, was that they changed it so that Roxy didn't actually commit the crime. And needed her to be innocent, I guess, if they were going to make you root for her. I I'm guess just guessing. so. And it was Ginger Rogers, so. Well, there <laughs> you go. In Florida, Maureen shared an apartment with her mother and she stayed in that same building until her death. Now, in 1955, it talked about she sat down and she composed this handwritten will and apparently wrote out a letter to her mom and it had all these specific instructions for how her property should be distributed. But she actually lived like 14 more years after okay. this. It said when she did pass, her estate was valued at $2 million, which in today's money would be about $14 million. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And one of the points that I thought was really interesting was they said that she basically for that whole life last piece of her life they kept using the word obscurity that she lived in obscurity and she also was viewed as being reclusive and kind of odd because they said that she would wear a black veil over her face whenever she appeared in public and one source said that it was never explained but a couple different sources speculated that they seemed to think that it was due to some kind of a cancer that had disfigured her face. Now when she did die in 1969 it was of lung cancer
0: did she I, smoke but she didn't but she was around all those guys who did well secondhand smoke maybe don't hold me to this
1: but I think I recall seeing in one of the articles that she did pick up smoking oh, later okay. in her life okay I could and be then wrong. again she
0: was around it at the mm-hmm. newsroom so yeah. there would have been secondhand smoke and then if she did start smoking yeah okay
1: now over the years she had had many 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 offers for people who wanted to buy their rights to Chicago and she refused every single time in fact one source said that she hired a company to handle all the rejections for her. Now, speculation. Some people said it was because she regretted the role she played, her her reporting had played, in the acquittal of these two women who committed the murder, and also regretted that she had transformed these murders into comedy, that she'd made Uh. light of things that were so serious. Yeah. Another researcher said that perhaps, speculated I should say, that perhaps she thought the play had been misinterpreted as that she was glorifying these women who had committed murder Uh when she clearly just wanted it to be social commentary yeah the author of the book Douglas Perry he doesn't side with their interpretations he doesn't believe that their speculation is accurate what does he think he thinks that she wouldn't have felt guilty because she did not help get these women acquitted she was openly critical of the media she was openly critical of the lawyer she clearly advocated for them to be convicted yeah some people had said that she became a born again Christian and that was part of it he says no that's not the case because she was really Religious and a Christian yeah, the whole time, right? So he thinks that perhaps she was worried that you named it earlier. This was her one and only uh, hit. It was her one great success in life, and people had already taken liberties. Mm-hmm. They changed That's things true. in That's her other true. movies, and he thought that she might be afraid they would either turn it into a fail or that it might not be relevant mm. because there was a 1935 stage revival in London. That had taken some criticism
0: Really? Yeah
1: So his speculation is she wanted it to go out as a success. She wanted it to kind of be left alone. Mm -hmm. But after she died in 1969, her estate did sell the rights to Chicago. And that is how six years after her death in 1975, director and choreographer Bob Fosse put out his musical version of Chicago, which is the one that we all recognize, the musical version. And it did open on Broadway in 1975. They said it was transformed into a musical after Bob Fosse's wife, Gwen Verdon read the play and insisted yeah. that it be made into a musical. Mm-hmm. And this team, Kander, Ebb, and Fosse, wanted the whole musical to really focus on the showbiz aspect of society. And so that is why they decided they were going to create the score that was going to incorporate these traditional vaudeville numbers that was really going to play up how this was all an act.
0: How yeah. this was all yeah. just I love that
1: decision. I'd... Oh, I think it made it. So they had to revive of Chicago on Broadway in 1996 that opened to great success. And Douglas Perry made the comment that he thought the recent OJ Simpson and Amy Fisher yes. trials probably helped yes. to make
0: it. I was just thinking when you were saying the crime of the century with Leopold and Loeb, how later that same century we had the trial of the century mm. with OJ Simpson. Yeah. He, in the same century. Right. Right. And that really added
1: relevance. Regardless, it won Tony's and it is the longest running review. Bible ever on Broadway, it is also Chicago is also the longest-running American show in Broadway history. And then, of course, in 2002, we have the movie version with Renee Zellweger, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Richard Gere that we've talked about, and that did win an Academy Award for Best Picture,
0: and also she got Best Supporting Actress. Catherine nice, did. Nice.
1: We've noted several changes in the movies and plays, and but two other things just very quickly. In the original play by Maureen, there was a male reporter named Jake who supposedly had a bigger part than Mary Sunshine who was one of the sob sisters that we see and Billy Flynn and they said that she Maureen used this character really to hammer home the point about these cases being driven by the media mm-hmm. and that whole point that she was going for her theme and so when they made the musical they removed his role well they
0: could tell it with the music that's what. The, that's exactly what they yeah. said they thought that the especially numbers especially with Razzle Dazzle mm-hmm. yeah that you can tell it in the tap dance yeah and the way that they had the women do the
1: numbers to manipulate and sell their stories Mm -hmm. yeah and then the other thing that was commented this was uh, one fella who did some analysis he'd read the 1926 version and one of the things he said was anybody who would be doing this play should go back and read the original to get a sense of the Roxy heart that Maureen wrote Mm -hmm. because this newer version is a little bit more of a spoiled brat and I think he felt that she was a much more complex and devious character in the original edge yeah she knew what she was doing absolutely so we just talked about what happened with Maureen let's quickly fill in the rest of the story for our other characters what happened to Beulah? al and belva okay so here we go beulah never made it to hollywood in fact you called it yep going in and going to that divorce lawyer right after she was acquitted did her in terrible decision everybody turned on her Mm -hmm. and the washington post they had an article that even called her out on it she lost her her spotlight she also never gave birth to a child which probably never existed right also helped turn people against her Mm -hmm. so in january of 1927 six months Months after her divorce from Al was finalized, she moved to Indiana and she married a 26 year old boxer named Edward Harlib. Their marriage lasted four months. Mm. Now, when they went to get the divorce, part of her testimony was about how he had beat her, mm-hmm. but that's not actually what she was using for grounds for divorce. What she said was the problem was that he had never actually divorced his first wife. Oh. So, after that divorce, or I guess dissolution of their marriage, she went back to Chicago to live with her mom. And not long after, she she got really sick yeah. early the next year. She was diagnosed with tuberculosis and was sent into the Chicago Fresh Air Sanitarium under the name Dorothy Stevens. I guess mm-hmm. she wanted she to wanted keep to, her yeah. anonymity. Mm-hmm. And she died just
0: weeks after entering the sanitarium. This was less than four years yeah. after the trial. Less than four years. So she would have been alive. The reason I said she didn't go to the premier is because she was in the sanitarium. I don't think she ever saw any of it.
1: So after the divorce, Al continued to be his sad self. One of his quotes was, I shall love Beulah with a love that cannot be destroyed. Beulah is no different than any other woman. She is naturally
0: weak and needs protection. She will come back to me. No. No, she didn't. No, she won't. No, she didn't. She's not even thought of you. Since the ink dried, you have not entered her mind.
1: Right. Yeah. Maureen, by the way, had very little sympathy for Al. Like she, she was... She's not having it. No, she felt like he should have been a stronger man, and he should have seen through her. Mm. She did. She did not. She's saying, "If
0: I can see it, why can't you see it?"
1: Mm -hmm. Ten years after Beulah left him, when Al was forty-nine years old he was convicted of manslaughter for beating to death the woman that he lived with in an apartment in Chicago. He struck her at about three in the afternoon, but didn't call police until three hours later. What? But he never served time because the judge granted a request for a new trial. And two weeks later, the case was dismissed for lack of evidence. And by the way, William Scott Stewart helped to defend him.
0: Wow. I did not remember that.
1: Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. So many parallels. Yes. To his wife's yes. situation. I, yes. I was taken aback. what, how did he become this kind of person? Well, it makes you wonder. Yeah. Was he, like, the press was so single-minded in its focus. There was mm-hmm. so much tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. What was he like other I than the know. sappy husband? You know, we don't even know. Let's turn to Belva. Belva did indeed remarry William in May of 1925 and immediately started Drinking and cheating on him. So they were married in May of 1925 and the inciting incident that led to the divorce, because there was all this going on before that. But, the, another but, divorce but, you mean? Their third divorce? Uh, second, right?
0: Second divorce? I think this is I the I don't second. remember. Yeah. I
1: can't keep up with them. Right. But on July 5th of 1926, he came home to find a man in his bedroom. Ugh. And when he got upset about it, Belva attacked him so viciously threatening to kill him that the poor man ends up locking himself in an empty room and because she still trying to beat down the door and get to him he barricades the door with chairs and a bed and of course there's so much more to this but basically they are now back in divorce court and this time the press is very anti-belva mm. they 100 percent saw him as the patient sympathetic character and they were done with her so she spent the next 20 or so years living in california near her sister and doing some traveling but kept a, a low profile she mm-hmm. never married again And when William died in 1948, he left most of his estate to her. (sighs) William. She had almost 20 more years to live, enjoying his money before she died. I
0: can't can't with you, William. (laughs) I can't with you, William.
1: It is interesting, isn't it? These women who are so, I don't know, heartless, immoral, and and, the men who stand beside them. Yes,
0: and okay, so we're, we're not casting aspersions if they, whatever they choose to do. Whatever they choose to do. Drinking, drugging, whatever. I'm not mad at you for that. I'm mad at you for your manipulation and your murdering. That's the thing. That's the thing. That's the pinpoint there, girls. Yeah. If you
1: make choices to harm yourself, that's your business. Yes. But when you when you harm others Yes. and when there's evidence that you've harmed others. Calculating. And when you're not held to it and when you're yeah you cal- cal- you're proud of it, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, yes. We're I agree. You're not going to get a
0: fan from us. No I... fan
1: letters from us. I agree. Well, you know what? I'm going to give you one positive. Please. Belva and Beulah, actually led to a positive change in the legal system. Do you remember this? I don't. So the extreme favoritism that they had received from their all-male juries was so blatant that it actually ignited this fierce debate on whether women should finally be allowed to serve on juries. Mm. And so Douglas Perry talks about this in his book. He said a headline that came out a week after Belva's acquittal was this a woman jury to try woman slayers urged claim now that pretty girls get free, ugly ones sent to pen. Mm. And so women's groups were lobbying hard to get women on juries, including the lawyer who had stepped in for Sabella Needy. Remember, she was the woman who got a new trial. Right, after she had the makeover. Yeah, So she was part of this. Anyway, it said Illinois took some convincing, but seven years later, in 1931, it did pass a law to allow women jurors, but the state Supreme Court knocked that down, and finally, in 1939, the legislature passed a law allowing women to serve. But here's the irony. Douglas Perry says, quote... In the four months after women began being admitted to Illinois' juries in 1939, the percentage of men asking to be excused from serving dropped dramatically.
0: Because they want to be on the jury with the women?
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Chicago Tribune found that men have suddenly become delighted to serve as jurors, (laughs) and the only reason the jury commissioners and court officials can even suggest is this, the women jurors. Dudes. (sighs) Okay, so before we move into our armchair segment, I'm curious, Ashley, do you have any thoughts about about the movie or the play that you want to share with
0: us? Well, I did take my notes while I was rewatching it. And I have just a few, not as many as some of the other stuff that we've done. But if you want, I can just go through what I observed. Okay, so I loved in opening All That Jazz, which I read in the trivia on IMDb that Catherine Zeta-Jones accepted the part because she... (laughs) wanted to sing that song. I saw that too. They offered her Roxy Hart. She's like, Does she sing all that jazz? No, 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 no. I wanna be Velma. So anyway, I and love I do
1: love that. I can see where you'd want to do that song. Yeah. It was yes. amazing.
0: And she won an Oscar for it. So there you go. I loved the shades of cabaret, if you've ever seen mm-hmm. the film cabaret i actually saw it on broadway oh where the moves and the choreography and the chairs it mm. looked so much like a bob Fosse. i loved that and i love how we don't see velma's face yet but she rips her sister's name off of the billboard or off the playbill i mean and then we start with the problem we talk about you need to start with the problem we know there's been a murder before the first song with the tissue and the sink and she's washing mm-hmm. the blood off her very hands so we know something's up we've already talked about the record player we talked about how i love how they mix the scene with the music how they put it in roxy's mind i love that like with the dripping faucet the steps etc i liked the use of the red scarf and the white scarf in cell block tango because the red scarf represented that they had actually done it and the if you i believe she's russian it's a white scarf or hungarian i forget the only one who's actually innocent and
1: she's the one that gets hung yes that was such good irony
0: for effect. Mm -hmm. Yes. I and I said I just really I love John C. Riley in this film. Isn't he fabulous? He is so sweet and I actually felt like he and the Again, I cannot remember. I'm so sorry if she's Russian or Hungarian or what her ethnicity was. But I thought they were the only two people who had any kind of sympathy Mm -hmm. in this entire film. Mm -hmm. But I read on the trivia that he loved clown performance so much that he's the one that wanted to make it the clown makeup (sighs) and the movements and all that. So that was his idea. And I love Mr. Cellophane. I love how he did that. John C. Riley's portrayal of that character actually made you really feel for him. Yeah. Like I rooted for him. I did too. Uh, Catalind. The character's name was, her name was Catalan. I thought his looked like an old vaudeville performer, Mr. Cellophane. Yeah. Anyway. And Catalan played Lady Justice in the Razzle Dazzle number. Did you notice that? I did not. She was on, because I noticed because of the mole on the side, when she's being lifted up in the scales of justice, she is the one. I think Uh, that was a very intentional thing. Oh, that's cool. Yes. I've never caught that. And that's actually all the notes that I took. Oh, but those were good thoughts. I oh, really like that. Awesome. I just, in general, I just very much liked the way they did this music. Oh, and I thought it was cute that at the end they made a specific note in the credits that said, all singing and dancing done by Renee Zellweger, Richard Gere, and Catherine Zeta Jones. And in the trivia, it said Sorry. that they wanted her to have her long hair, but she insisted on the bob so that they would know it's me doing this singing. That and was Catherine Zeta Jones. Yes, I saw that yes. too. Good for her. Way to but again, that was show back... that other side. Yeah, or... that was back mm-hmm. when you had people who did did the singing for you, and it was before you expected the actors to do their own singing and dancing. He took tab dance lessons for like three months and he filmed his scene in half a day. Nice. Yeah. According to IMDB at least. Armchair psychologist.
1: So for our armchair, Ashley, we've said repeatedly that Maureen was not about talking about true crime. She was really trying to bring to light this tendency in Mm -hmm. our society to to make celebrities Mm -hmm. of people who do really bad things and or to let people get away with doing really bad things because they're a celebrity or they're pretty. Yeah. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, I think a modern trial of a pretty woman who, again, in my opinion, only my opinion, don't know if it's your opinion, a pretty woman who got away with murder in the trial of Casey Anthony because there was so such a gigantic uproar because everybody said all the evidence everything we've everything we've heard everything we've seen says that if she did not do it she at least at the very least knows what happened to her Mm -hmm. daughter i just i think it's pervasive i don't see it ever changing Mm. because if this happened 100 years ago maureen was trying to change it maureen was shining light and a lot of people will just watch chicago and take it at the surface value of a a great musical which it is it's Mm -hmm. got great music great dance numbers all of that is fine but what she was trying to say is look at the media circus look how Mm -hmm. they're manipulating your opinion open your eyes and look and not everybody's going to do that 100 years later, we're still grappling with this. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that we could say, is it worse? I don't know. I don't know if it's worse, or do we just have more outlets? You know, meaning television, Social internet, media, yeah. yeah, TikTok, mm-hmm. all, of the, all of these different things. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad. They can all be used for good, but it just de- depends on the motivation of the person using the media. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I had any kind of point in there, but that's just my thoughts right now. I don't know that it's going to get better. I think it's something we're going to always struggle with. Because even you and I working in acting and, and me being in publicity, I know that you can put out certain things that make evoke a certain emotion. And you have to be careful not to manipulate in malice, you have to be careful to try to tell the truth in what you're putting out.
1: Yeah, I think You make a good point. I think we're both agreeing with Pamela Anderson that this is still just as relevant today as it ever was. I think we've clearly taken a stand on that. But it's interesting because I'm also thinking about it from the storyteller perspective. For example, guys, when you're starting a podcast, one of the things that you have to do is you have to promote a little bit. You have to get the word out. And so I have been learning how to do TikTok videos. Yes, and you've done a great job. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Definitely learning. But it's interesting. Because we had a Jaws part one and a Jaws part two, as I hope you guys. No, because you listened. But I created a TikTok video for both. Mm -hmm. Same content. Mm -hmm. One TikTok video had approximately, I can't recall, five or 600 views. Which is amazing. The other one has 28,000. Which is astounding. What's the difference? I have no idea. Just a tiny little angle. You know, what a different hook? Yeah. A different, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, just one tiny slant and one thing appealed to the viewers. Mm -hmm so much more so than the other. Mm-hmm. And I don't even really know <laughs> what, what the it was. <laughs> was. But clearly one resonated yeah. and one did not. And so that makes, you know,
0: that's something that comes to my mind. And oh, then... no, no. One, one they both resonated. 500 views is amazing. It's resonating. Just one was astronomical. Well, yeah. Either way, it just makes you wonder, yeah. what
1: was it? What was know. it? But then I'm jumping everywhere. I feel so, so random. But I go to, if you're going to talk about a factor, not about TikTok videos, but about telling a story, I think we've seen in these cases that wealth and resources yeah. made a difference oh, as yeah. well. The mm-hmm. people who had access to the lawyers, to the press, to get their version of the story out there, mm-hmm. that made
0: a difference. I've, I heard it said once, it's not who tells it best, it's who tells it first. So if the ladies get out there and they get their story out there first, they can just stay ahead of it and twist it however they want. Again, it goes it also, narcissism, it's just society tends to reward narcissism, and it's disappointing. And I don't know, the film is interesting in that it is a astounding piece of art that has terrible, unlikable leads. But the message is really important. And I think you need to see the show. I think you need to watch that to see the message. I agree
1: with you. I think that it was really a pretty masterful production. I'm gonna guess that I probably would like not having read Maureen's original version. (laughs) I'm still gonna guess that I probably like this musical version much better because mm-hmm. I do love the vaudeville acts and yes. how they have incorporated that and used that to make their point and I think it's so powerful how clearly they show the satire and the manipulation of the media and even ending it by putting Roxy and Velma on stage yeah. where they're now performers and they have actually taken the celebrity and they, they get to continue to be performers mm-hmm. where they are still loved and manipulating their audience Mm -hmm. and they're being applauded for the awful things they done
0: they put they come out with guns the the tommy guns i know and they shoot out their names and lights it's just like wow what a thing
1: right it's such a statement it is and well done because Mm -hmm. it makes its point Mm -hmm. it does so who are we going to cheers you know what
0: we cheers maureen before because we could not think of anyone likable enough but (laughs) let's let's do mr douglas this time let's do you know we should have done him the first time and maureen this time but you know what's our show
1: we (laughs) can do what
0: we want we can cheers who we want so douglas perry and maureen again god love you thank you for bringing this this story to the light we really appreciate it it made us think and you know you need to think these days yeah i agree and fascinating fascinating
1: cheers to you cheers If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing.
0: At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can Join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast.
1: This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by
0: Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder,
1: this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.